every time you open a bottle of medicine or a package of food that has a security seal, you probably don't realize that it's there because of a string of murders in the Chicago area in 1982. Seven people died after taking tainted pain medicine, which gave the case its name, the Tylenol murders. Officially, the case is still unsolved. Unofficially, we're going to look at a man who was arguably the prime suspect and talk to someone who knew him. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Unlovely Truth. I'm your host, private investigator Lori Morrison, and I'm going to bring you another story from the world of true crime, and we're going to see where it intersects with our faith. I hope you'll join forces with me to answer what I think is every Christian's calling, and that's to be a different kind of PI, a person of impact. We'll talk about a practical way that you can do that after we dive into today's case. This is Season 3, Episode 37. Our book this week is The Painkiller, Finding Meaning After Murder. Our guest is its author, Greg Hoover. Let's investigate this week's case and see where you think the evidence leads. On Wednesday, September 29, 1982, 12-year-old Mary Kellerman of Elk Grove Village, Illinois, woke up with a sore throat. She took some extra-strength Tylenol to help with the pain, like you or I would have done. Within minutes, Mary collapsed, and the paramedics that responded to her parents' frantic 911 call couldn't save her. 27-year-old Adam Janice took some Tylenol that same day for a cold. He died, too. His family gathered at his home to mourn their loss, and Adam's brother Stanley and sister-in-law Teresa also died after taking Tylenol from the same bottle that Adam had. Within days, new mom Mary McFarland, flight attendant Paula Prince of Chicago, and Mary Reiner of Winfield all died after taking Tylenol capsules. Authorities quickly tested the bottles from each victim's home and found cyanide present in the capsules. The media and the local police alerted people not to use any Tylenol products that they might have. Then copycat poisonings cropped up with different products as police tried to identify a suspect. After nearly 40 years, no one has been charged with these crimes. But the author of our book for this week met a leading suspect when the author was just five years old. It was 1971 and Greg Hoover's mom and dad were beginning to invest in real estate. Helping them was a man we'll call John Price and his wife, Sarah. Greg tagged along as they visited potential investment properties. Playing in the house's yards was a lot more interesting to a five-year-old than touring the insides of those houses. One day, as he scrambled around the backyard of yet another house, a board partly buried in the ground caught his eye. Thinking like a five-year-old, that there might be treasure underneath, he pried the board up. Instead of treasure, he saw the body of a woman. Greg ran to tell his parents and the Prices. John Price said that Greg probably found a dog and that they should just keep touring the house. Greg's dad checked out what his son had found, and he wanted to call the police. It was definitely not a dog. It was a woman, and she was dead. John said they should just go home and that he would take care of contacting the authorities. Greg's mom was worried that they might not be safe continuing to look at properties, but his father assured her that they'd be fine. John Price would be with them. 
I hope that you're checking out the show notes that come with every episode. They're available from wherever you listen to the podcast. And if you have any trouble finding them, you can click the Listen Now button at the top right of my website and find them for every single episode. That's where you'll find links to extra information about the cases we cover, the books that are featured, and where you can find bonus content if you join the membership zone. There's also so many more things that you just don't want to miss, like the blog posts and a link to the Expand Your Impact Summit where you can find more great Christian content from wonderful creators that worked with me. Check it out after we're done with this episode. The Hoover family later found out that John had spent time in a mental institution after being diagnosed with catatonic schizophrenia. He'd been evaluated after witnesses saw him chasing his foster mother with an axe. It appears that John recovered, at least enough to live back in society. And that's when the Hoovers met him. He sold them houses and helped manage their rental properties. I don't think it was a coincidence that many of those tenants supposedly skipped payments, leaving the Hoovers short on their income. In 1978, when Greg was about 12 years old, John Price was arrested for the murder of a man who lived near him and Sarah. John's lawyer brought up a very important point prior to John's trial. The police had never read John his Miranda rights. That omission made enough evidence suddenly inadmissible that the case was dismissed. Greg was a teenager when the poisonings in Chicago happened. He remembered talking about it with his parents as they watched the news of those deaths and the investigation on TV. A letter from someone claiming responsibility for the killings was sent to the makers of Tylenol and demanded a million dollars for the killings to stop. Reporters said the police had tracked the letter to a man named Robert Richardson. When a picture of Richardson flashed onto the screen, the Hoovers were shocked. It was a photo of John Price. You'll have to grab yourself a copy of the newly released book, The Painkiller, by today's guest, Greg Hoover, so you can learn more about the case. It is a great read, and it dives into a lot of deep, deep questions. And we're going to talk about a few of those here with Greg in just a second. You'll even get to hear my robot voice that happens when my tech challenge self doesn't get the right settings on my microphone when I record remote interviews. So feel free to record your best impersonation of me and share it on social media. I'm so excited to have you today, Greg, because I remember this case very vividly. I was a young teenager when it happened and lived in the Midwest, and people really were terrified the way you described in the book. So thank you for joining us to go a little more in depth with this. Absolutely. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Most of us haven't stumbled across a dead body as a child. So I just have to ask you how you think that that has impacted your life. That obviously is a big thing for a small child to encounter. It's a big thing for anyone of any age to encounter. And um, as a child, I remember pulling back the lid that I described in the book and seeing the woman in the hole. And I can still see it very clearly in my mind. I can see all the details of it, almost like my mind took a snapshot of it. 
I remember the first feeling I had was of overwhelming compassion. I just felt um, wanting to reach out and, and help this person who was already dead, you know? And so as a small child, the only thing one can really do is go find a trusted adult and talk to them. And so I went straight to my parents, who were definitely trusted adults, and told them what happened. And I think it took a few minutes to kind of sink in that there is literally a body in a hole outside uh, in, a, in the yard. And um, I think it took a few minutes for them to, to grasp that and then to realize that their little child had discovered this. At the same time, I, my mother has a little baby who's my little sister on her hip, you know, and um, it's a very impactful thing. And uh, it is true what they say that children are very strong, I think stronger than we realize, sometimes stronger than adults. And uh, that early experience, I think, started me on the path that the book follows of wondering, why do things like this happen? That is a question we'll wrestle with in a minute, definitely. And most of us also don't suddenly find out that a close acquaintance of ours just might be a killer. That had to have a tremendous impact, not just on you, but your entire family, because your parents were in business with this man and his wife. How do you think that changed or did it change your family dynamic? It was such a strange situation, I think. As a child uh, going through it, I think it was different than I see it now looking back. And looking back at it now, I think that my parents intentionally downplayed as much as possible the situation of me finding the body and the situation as it began to unfold of the oddities about this relationship with the acquaintance you're talking about. I think that at the time they thought to protect us, we would not say very much about it. And it wasn't until things began to stack up over the years and more and more happened that my parents began to talk more and more about it. And it really wasn't until I was an adult when they would really open up and really talk about memories and feelings and things like that. I think to some degree, there was a certain amount of protecting the children by not talking about scary topics, you know? And at the other time, there was balance with um, my, my mother. I think it impacted more than about anyone. I think she really developed a heightened sense of concern that something would happen to me and my siblings. And that would be very natural and normal to have that. And I think that stayed with her, though, the rest of her life. Um, she just died a few months ago, and we talked about the case up until the very end. And she had mentioned just the, the fear that she's lived with for all these years, that it never really went away. She always had the fear that, um, that something would happen to me and my siblings. And I think it goes all the way back to these early frightening experiences. So, yeah, it affected our family dynamic in a lot of ways. Oh, I can only imagine. And I think as parents and as moms especially, we do have that fear. We feel so very responsible for the safety of our children, of our family. And that's one of the things that, that I really like to talk about here on the podcast is these stories. One of the reasons I like to tell them is because when we have more information, when we have more understanding, I think we are able to keep ourselves and our family and our communities safer. And you alluded to a big question that I was wanting to ask. So we'll dive into it. And you ask this yourself in the book. How do survivors find meaning after a crime has occurred, whether that's just in a, a large sense of their own lives or 
their faith in God? Yes, and that is a question that I think each person who's touched on crime and who has faith has struggled with. And there are no easy answers, and I don't pretend like there are in my book, you know. We explore a lot of different possibilities that maybe might be helpful to people who are going through this. But if there's ever anything to shatter an ivory tower or pie in the sky kind of view of life in the universe, it's when you encounter serious crime, as you know from your work. But I find that people I've talked to who have gone through situations like this are incredibly resilient. And sometimes the paradox is they seem to have a stronger faith than people who haven't encountered these very difficult and dangerous situations, that somehow and in some way, however we want to name or label the powers that be in the universe that are that are hostile, and, and however you want to think of that or label that, when we encounter them, I think the paradox can often be we come out stronger than before. We're more compassionate to other people who are suffering. Oh, so very true. I have seen that time and time and time again with the families that I've worked with. So many of them turn into advocates because they want to either help people that have gone through what they have, or they want to try to prevent it from happening to anyone else. And one of my very favorite parts of your book, it's toward the end, you were talking to a friend about some of both of your life experiences, and you had a sudden realization and you phrased it like this. I've always been okay. I just haven't always known that. That's a big statement. So I want to ask you to unpack that a little bit for people who might be struggling right now, thinking that they are most definitely not okay. Yes, right. And it was a journey to get to that moment, like you said. Um, But yeah, I reached a point where I realized, so throughout my life, I'll be open and honest that I've I've dealt with a lot of anxiety. And I've mentioned this in the book a lot. It was like my, um, I don't know, my inner warning system has always been on high alert. You know, it's always been looking out. And as a parent myself, I uh, have been that way as well. And I've always been very concerned about children, especially making sure that they're safe and okay. And that's all wonderful. But the shadow side of that has been a lot of anxiety, a lot of feeling of hypervigilance almost and kind of uh, looking out for the danger that could be around places. And then I finally realized that all of this struggle and all of this pain, this anxiety was actually a gift. That what I had tried so hard to wrestle with and get rid of and push away from me was the anxiety. And that that anxiety itself was a gift. It was something that led to a lot of things that I find good now. That's what made me a compassionate person. That's what made me a creative person, an insightful person, a person who's willing to listen and to help people out. And I wouldn't change that for anything, you know? I wouldn't change that for anything. And those are all some of the intangible gifts I got from this anxiety that, that stemmed back. And I realized that my, my brain was still looking for danger, even though it was over. You know, that I already went through that danger when I was five years old and, and thereafter. If I could do that at five, six, seven, eight, ten, I could do anything now, you know? And I try to teach that in my classes. I teach empowering people to realize that you're anxious because your mind's remembering things that you've already survived, you've already done wonderful with. I think a lot of people do struggle with anxiety. They do just have that constant readiness of something that might happen, like you were saying, because they're remembering something that did happen. Exactly. Anxiety is so detrimental 
to our physical health as well as our mental and our emotional and our yes. spiritual health. I love that you're teaching classes on that because I think a lot of people think that, it, it, especially in the faith community, I just need to tough it out. I need to pray harder. I need to have more faith. And that's what will fix everything. And, and in some cases, that's true. But I think that God also gives wisdom to people like you who are teaching these classes or counselors, and that it is completely okay to try to work through issues with a trusted right. advisor. Well said, yes. What would you say to someone who is, is kind of still in that, I just have to get through this on my own mode? Yeah, yeah. When you mentioned a trusted advisor, and I think that's a great way of saying it, and they can come in a lot of different forms. Uh, of course, they can come from a licensed professional counselor, and that's wonderful, a licensed psychologist or even a medical doctor with a strong background in mental health. They all can be wonderful wonderful advisors. So can a sensitive pastor at your church. So can a person who has zero training in these things. But they have what I sometimes call a PhD in pain. And what I mean by that is they've gone through pain themselves, and they've come out of it wiser. They've come out of it healed and whole. And they can listen to you and uh, you can feel, feel safe with them and open up to them. And then they might have a few thoughts to help out too, you know? So that trusted advisor can't be overlooked. And we also need to remember that this is how God works in the world so often. He works through trusted advisors, you know, people who are willing to listen more than talk and then to maybe reflect back to your feelings and giving you a safe space where you can just open up. And you know what? If you're going to cry, that's just fine. And if you're going to be angry, that's just fine. And it wouldn't be uncommon for some people to feel anger towards God. And, you know, even God is okay with that, I believe. You know, God wants a loving relationship with us. And sometimes we need to express that anger to God. And God can take that anger and transform it into spiritual gold. God's at work in every moment to wring every single drop of good possible out of bad situations. And God can do that with crime and with even much less things than crime. Yeah, he promises in his word that he can give us beauty for ashes. Yes. If we'll just offer those ashes up to him. That's, I love, love that, that scripture. And I also, I love how you mentioned that PhD in pain. Because I think a lot of people, I, I encourage people to be what I call a different kind of PI. You don't have to be a private investigator or PI like I am, but you can be a person of impact. And being that person who has taken your own experiences and being able to sit with someone in their pain, like you said, being able to listen more than you talk, being able to let people cry with you, because a lot of people get really uncomfortable with that. But being that safe person that someone can talk to, you don't have to have a PhD in counseling to be able to help. Totally right. Yeah, totally right. I mentioned it in the book, but my mother always said um, that we have it kind of backwards and that we're embarrassed to let people see us cry, but we don't mind if they see us angry. And she always says, you know, maybe we ought to flip that around. Maybe we should make it okay to cry and then really think about it before we start expressing a lot of anger at people. Your mother sounds like a very wise woman. Absolutely. I love that. And I also loved Another thing that that same friend told you, it just resonated with me so much. Insurance companies will tell us what an act of God is. They will call it a tornado, a hurricane, whatever. But your friend said, natural disasters aren't acts of God. 
acts of God or when people pull together to help each other afterward. How important is that community to our emotional, mental, and spiritual health? Yes. Um, I think you really hit the nail on the head with this because I feel like the body of Christ, you know, that St. Paul talks about in the New Testament, the body of Christ that you and I and your listeners and all around the world, all throughout history, these, this body of believers in, in Jesus um, corporately together is the most powerful force on earth. You know, I really do feel like that the, the faith community is incredibly helpful on a lot of different ways. Uh, it's incredibly therapeutic to be a part of a faith community, a place that's healthy and strong, where we love and care for each other, where we listen to each other's burdens, where we celebrate each other's triumphs. That community of faith is where it's at. You know, for many years, I worked in mental health and I loved doing that. And I did it as a way of reaching out and helping people. And for a lot of years, I really thought that, you know, doing therapy was where it's at. And it's still wonderful. But then now I realize it's the faith community is where it's really at, you know, and uh, when that kind of spiritual fruit is in that context of a faith community, that is a powerful thing. One of the most important parts about being a Christian is Christian fellowship on a daily, weekly basis, not just an hour or two on Sunday, but throughout the week. And then being there for each other as a listening presence. If you could pick one thing from your book that you want readers to take away from it, what would it be? That even though we go through very difficult situations, even though we go through hard times, even though we go through struggles that sometimes are victims of violence and even crime, even though all these things happen, they don't have to leave us feeling like broken and damaged people. That we are more than our burdens, we are more than our pain, and even things like this level of pain we're talking about um, can be a spark for personal growth and spiritual transformation. It can be a spark for growing mentally, spiritually, emotionally, ethically. And we can come out the other side stronger than before and even shining more brightly the light of Christ that's within us. Well, by the time everybody's listening to this, your book will be out for everybody to get. And I will put a link to where people can buy it in the show notes. But tell us all where we can connect with you online. One of the best ways of uh, getting in touch with what I'm doing online is simply to Google the phrase Greg, G-R-E-G, Hoover, H-O-O-V-E-R, author. And that will take you to my Amazon author page. And then from there, it can link around to some other things, too. And rather than give a long um, you know, hyperlink uh, verbally, I'll just say Google Greg Hoover author, and it'll take you to some of my work. Awesome. Do you have any other plans for any more books or any other media coming up? Any projects you're excited about? Well, I was wondering if I wanted to write more, uh, another book or not, because there's so much pouring of your own soul into the work. And part of me kind of thought, well, maybe I won't. Maybe I'm just going to spend a lot of time with marketing this book and and uh, I'm still going to do that. But very recently, just within the last week, I've come up with a book project that's very exciting to me. All I can say right now, it's, it's not going to be a lot of information, but it's going to take one year in my life, beginning 10 months ago and going through one year of uh, incredible spiritual struggle and then the incredible spiritual fruit that's come from it. And I feel like it's going to be a book that's really going to help people on their daily path in a very practical way. 
That sounds really intriguing. And I'm excited because I feel like I got a scoop. Nobody else knows totally about right. it, right? The first reveal right here. Well, thank you again for joining us, for sharing your story, and mostly all of the insights you've drawn from it over the years. So really appreciate your time, Greg, and really love your book. Thank you so much, Lori. And thank you for challenging me and all your listeners to be a person of impact. I think that it's natural for us to look at John Price or whoever the painkiller is and say to ourselves that they are just evil. They're terrible, awful creatures who barely even deserve to be called human. They're nothing like, well, us. We may not have poisoned seven people, but before we ride off on our moral high horses, let's read Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3 from the Good News Translation. Fools say to themselves, there is no God. They are all corrupt, and they have done terrible things. There is no one who does what is right. The Lord looks down from heaven at us humans to see if there are any who are wise, any who worship him. But they have all gone wrong. They are all equally bad. Not one of them does what is right. Not a single one. That lesson is so hard for us to hear and accept. We all make choices that are contrary to the will of God. Of course, some have more obvious consequences on earth here than others, but we all fall short. And I don't say that to condemn anybody, but I want to encourage us to grow in humility because when we do that, I think it becomes so much easier to serve others that we need to be serving and do it joyfully. I hope you'll find someone this week to be that person that Greg and I called a trusted advisor. You can sit with them in their pain and just listen. Let them talk. Let them cry and just be there for them. There's no need to fix their situation. Just leave it to God to bring about whatever good from the situation that he will. That is a tremendous way to be a person of impact. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neil Cortex, and artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time. Thank you for listening to this episode that is part of the Spark Media Network that can now be heard on the Edify app. 